Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we welcome Jules Pretty. Jules is Professor of Environment and Society at the University of Essex and is the author of many books, including The Edge of Extinction and This Luminous Coast, both from Comstock Publishing Associates. He's also author of The Earth Only Endures and co-editor of the book Green Exercise. His most recent book with Cornell's Comstock imprint is The East Country, Almanac Tales of Valley and Shore. We caught up with Jules at his home in the village of Nayland, at the borders of the counties of Suffolk and Essex in eastern England. Hello, Jules. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Hello, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on the podcast. You're an author of many books from us and many books before you even came on board. Uh, But within our Comstock imprint, uh, most recently, The East Country, Almanac Tales of Valley and Shore. Uh, Before that, The Edge of Extinction, Travels with Enduring People and Vanishing Lands. And earlier, This Luminous Coast, Walking England's Eastern Edge. Um, You're... uh, you're full of ideas. You're full of energy. Uh, we follow you, with, obviously, and you follow us on social media, too, and, and you're very active on social media, and we love the, the poems that you present uh, on a daily basis, uh, reminding us to connect with nature, uh, slow down, take time, um, and, uh, you know, the proverbial smell of the roses, um, and not only the focusing on the, the beautiful roses, that does obvious beauty, but looking at the, the smaller bits of beauty that people made us pass by, that there's beauty in a puddle by the side of the sidewalk that we can look, if we, if we look deeper, we can see beauty everywhere we look. Um, and so I was really impressed with your Green Manifesto, Manifesto for the Green Mind, um, that you published last year, and wanted to ask you about it, and, and uh, if you could, for the listening audience, uh, explain what this, these 10 calls to action are, are about. Uh, certainly, uh, the core really core idea is that um, uh, we know that if uh, we engage in extreme attentiveness or indeed immersion in kind of a range of activities which might be nature based or social with friends, family, or other people, or craft or art based, and we're kind of really focused in on something, that level of of attentiveness brings it's it promotes the the parasympathetic nervous system, which is all about rest and digest. Um, and, it, and it promotes kind of um, immune reactions that are healing. There's a whole range of kind of benefits, health benefits that come from that, uh, well established in, in the literature. And what, what we wanted to do was to say, you know, that attentiveness, that immersion, if we could find just a minute a day to do that or longer if you have other activities, um, then that would, that would de-stress us a little bit in the face of a kind of complex churning world. Um, our lives are complex, there's many, many kind of stressors to them. Um, and nature is a really good place for that to happen. And that might be small nature like your back garden or a community garden or a, or a food, um, a community food farm, or it might be grand nature like big wildernesses, um, Yosemite or something like that. Um, we know that those places encourage us to behave in a certain kind of way. So if I could give you one example, um, almost all of us, um, uh, and my uh, has a guess, uh, most listeners, uh, will have a photograph of a sunset on their phone or their camera or in their folder somewhere. And what is it about sunsets that, that, uh, that attract us and intrigue us? 
Well, it's not the colour. It's not something special about the colours of a sunset. It's because we've learned the behaviour to stop, settle down, and look at the sunset and go, wow, isn't that nice? Isn't that lovely? So actually what we've done is engaged in a behaviour which slows us down and immerses us. And then over time, we, we then think of that behaviour as, as something that makes us feel good. It de-stresses us. And that feeling good then becomes associated with the view of the sunset. So there's nothing innate or evolutionary about sunsets being nice. It's that we behave in a certain kind of way to them. And that is health-giving. Now, that also works in lots of other contexts. A natural context, it works at the beach. You know, why do we like the beach? It's because we sit around doing nothing, watching other people doing nothing, and it's wonderful. So it's, it's our behaviours that then make us, make us kind of feel better as a result of it. So the manifesto for the green mind was all about how we could encourage behaviours of children, of care homes where the elderly might be, of policymakers to encourage more outdoor physical activity and engagement with nature. And it's really about that's the kind of the core of it. How could we choose, in a sense, to behave differently um, and also benefit from it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, um, I can resonate with all of these. Um, and, you know, I live in, a, uh, we both live in, in beautiful uh, environments. Um, and uh, you on the eastern coast of England and we in upstate New York. Um, and uh, it's perhaps easier for us. Uh, I just can look out my window and I see a lot of trees. Uh, I walk out of my house and within two blocks, I'm in front of a waterfall. And many times I see a, a great blue heron and I stop and just watch the great blue heron for a couple of minutes and it's, it's magical. Um, but there are times that I go to uh, New York City and I imagine when you go to London or any major city, um, there are trees every, every once in a while, but it's a lot of concrete. Um, and to live in that, you know, many millions of people because of opportunities and culture and whatnot, you know, choose the city um, and therefore, um, you know, they don't have as much access to this green mind. What, what recommendations do you have for folks that are in the city um, to, uh, you know, encourage them to um, experience green mind in a world of concrete? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think there are a number of different scales there. In a sense, in the, in the big city, if we take uh, both New York and London as, as exemplars there, where there is green space, it then becomes really much more important because it's kind of limited and there are lots of people who want to access it. So the, the, um, the iconic value of Central Park and the importance of that to, uh, to Manhattan residents, um, Hyde Park in the middle of London, one of the, one of the big um, main parks, on a summer's evening like today, there will be 200,000 people in Hyde Park wow. this evening wow. enjoying the green space, walking around with friends, with family, kicking a football, having a picnic, just, just chilling out. And you could say, well, why aren't they all at home watching TV? You know, what, why are they in that green space? It's because they feel a benefit from being there. And so they're articulating their kind of choices through having that bit of space there. Um, and they'll be benefiting in terms of health by going out into that space. So in cities, wherever there are green spaces, you could look upon them as kind of really important jewels in the crown that we must protect, that we must look after, um, because they're actually open to all. And that's the other side of this. You know, they're not, they're not restricted. They're not private spaces owned by just a few. 
that that openness is a, is a kind of pro-social thing as well. So that's the bigger scale. But then you could run right down to a smaller scale, community gardens, uh, farms in the city, uh, your own garden, maybe a few green plants in pots on, on, on outside the window if you're living in a block. Um, all of those are known to have direct benefits for our health. So every little bit of space that's used, every tree that's encouraged and not cut down, every, every little kind of opportunity for engagement, whether it's guerrilla gardening or proper kind of city farms, all of those bring a kind of health benefit. But they also, um, by encouraging engagement by larger numbers of people, we know that they're having a benefit for health, possibly at a population level as well. So I think that that's kind of quite interesting. I, we would say that you can, you can access um, uh, green spaces technically anywhere. Um, there are fewer of them in, in cities than in rural areas. But actually, um, here's a little figure for you. In London, uh, people walk on average 290 miles per year. But in rural England, it's only 120 miles. So in the city, people are more physically active actually partly because there's a metro, partly because um, uh, uh, lots of kind of public transport and people walk a lot in the course of going and coming from work or going to the theatre or whatever, or, or to restaurants. Whereas in rural areas, it's actually more dangerous to walk on the roads because of the number of vehicles that there are today. So we have this kind of odd twist that in the city, although it's a city and there's more pollution, uh, people are more physically healthy and possibly access green space more than people in rural areas. That's interesting. Yeah, I saw that statistic. I was like, wow. Um, and I, you know, I live on the outskirts of the, the the city, but I try to walk. We try to walk into town as often as we can. Um, and there, and I am, you know, I know that London has this, and I know the Dutch and the Scandinavian countries were ahead of all the countries. But as far as like bicycling, um, having bicycle lanes and things like that, um, Ithaca has done an interesting program where these they call line bikes and it's basically accessible uh, and you can ride a bike anywhere. Those types of things are fascinating uh, to me as well. Um, that people in rural, even, you know, either because a small city, um, but that these, these opportunities for physical exercise are being embraced by smaller communities too. Right? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, uh, and, they, and it immediately suggests there's an important role for policy there because by design, by choice, policy um, uh, whether it's urban planning or rural planning um, or, or transport planning can actually make decisions that can encourage us as kind of citizens to behave in different ways, to cycle more, to walk more, which we know will have a direct benefit for our health. And, and of course, there is a good economic argument here, though, which is that the more active and healthy each citizen is, the less likely they are going to need to draw down on acute medical services. Um, in the UK, the, the National Health Service is under extreme pressure um, uh, for all sorts of reasons. But one of those is is kind of lifestyle related um, uh, illness or unwellness. Um, that is meaning that a larger proportion of the population are presenting to acute care and needing support of doctors and, and, and so forth. And every person who's prevented from doing that creates an economic benefit. So there are kind of important economic drivers which policymakers ought to listen to we're not just saying green spaces are good because they're nice or because they support wildlife or because we might like to sit in them actually there's a direct health benefit there's a direct economic benefit um, let alone other ones like 
um, trees being very good at scouring air pollution out of the air and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, the insurance companies are starting to hear this too. It's going to save. Well, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I liked, I liked that you know you're talking you know the obvious is you know green space and and our, our physical environment. But I like how you also fuse in public health. Uh, with also mental health and our mental environment that doesn't necessarily involve the environment, but our own, our own mind and how our own mind, um, when it does slow down and take time to, again, smell the, smell the roses or look for beauty, um, that we, we're, we're going to be healthier. We're going to be mentally healthier and physically healthier. Yes, yeah, so exactly. And a, a part of the, the, um, the, the kind of neuroscience behind this is that, that there's a little central part of the brain called the amygdala which is a, a mediator for kind of stressors it's where it's 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 the part of the brain that in our kind of evolutionary history if we thought there was a saber-toothed tiger in the bushes it would be the amygdala that goes bang run um, and tells us to to go as fast as we can um, and what it does is it responds even if there isn't one there because um, it needs to make sure you run away the 99 times there isn't one in case the one occasion there is one, you would get eaten. So you'd be selected out of the evolutionary history pretty quickly if you didn't run. So our amygdala is kind of the, the thing that kind of clicks in when we feel a stress. The problem is when we feel more and more stress, the amygdala becomes like a hair trigger. So it becomes, it responds more to smaller stresses. Mm. Um, and over time becomes like a hair trigger. And we then um, start feeling greater stress from smaller things. So the, the opposite side of that is when we engage in more of these kind of relaxed, calming, meditative type of activity with friends, maybe learning paint, maybe doing a kind of knitting or some other kind of craft work that slows you down. So there's a whole range of things that we could do, some many of which are skills based, um, which then can't just kind of slow us down. That then allows the amygdala to kind of uh, repair itself. Um, and um, over time not become so hair trigger and then when stressors come at us we're much more able to just go that's fine i'm not worried by that whereas before you might have been kind of really extremely stressed by it so there's quite a lot of kind of neuroscience that supports this idea of our behaviors then re rewiring back again our brain in a certain kind of way which allows us to cope with the, the daily stresses that we all feel uh, due to kind of modern living Interesting. So, so when you're in your calls to action, you say every adult learn should learn a new skill or a craft throughout life. Your the neuroscience is basically saying by 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 learning a new craft or new skill or playing a musical instrument or what have you, that that is actually uh, helping the amygdala not fire. That it's calming it down, and the parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system is 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 a calming uh, response yeah and there's a there's a whole range of things about kind of keeping the brain kind of active in the broadest sense so it's it it is interesting when you when you look at um uh, the the part of the world where the, they're the most um uh, active and healthy centenarians are two parts of japan nagano and nokinawa and the reasons why people are live long but also live very well is uh, five things. Um, people in those areas um, eat interesting and spicy and unusual food. So eating is an interesting thing to do. They're outdoors every day. They engage in physical activity every day. They're socially engaged, both men and women, which is interesting because in the 
in the West, women tend to be much more connected at older age than men. Men to, tend to become more lonely and separated. And finally, they're always learning a new skill or using their brain in some sort of way to kind of keep engaged and keep having a kind of reason for living. Now, you could transform all five of those to um, any kind of stage of our life, actually. You could say all, all five of those are important for children. Um, outdoors every day, engaging with nature, having good friendship groups, learning stuff, eating interesting food rather than unhealthy food. Well, there's a kind of, there's a good kind of set of, of um, lessons for good living that come from that. And they all support an active brain as well as an active body, um, uh, which then allows us hopefully to um, thrive throughout the course of life. Nice. I mean, there was a famous book in the US, I don't know if it made it to the UK, it was um, everything I really needed to learn in life, I learned in kindergarten. So many of those skills that what you were just saying in, in Japan and in Okinawa, they're discontinuing what they, uh, you know, they're not acting like children necessarily, but the things that, that brought children joy still brings them joy in their 80s and 90s. Exactly, exactly. And, and actually, that's a really interesting point, because one, one of the kind of problems that's happened in, in kind of modern living has been, you, you might, we might be getting those things right at kindergarten, but then in the kind of the, the five to... Um, 11, 5 to 11 year old age group um, is the one where children used to spend a lot of time outdoors messing about um, not in controlled play but in discovery mode building tree houses damming the brook at the bottom of the garden messing around with kids on the edge of the, the village or the town uh, learning about the world in their own way going out at eight o'clock in the morning and coming back at tea time. That's how it used to be for me when I grew up. So go away and come back at tea time. Same here, yeah. um, and then, oh, all right, fine. And so you just, but now um, it's much more likely to be controlled, organized, uh, not um, uh, a free range, if you want to put it, <laughs> free range children, good, good, good kind of context for children. And that we're missing. And the sort of thing that worries me is that that's not just about physical activity um, or learned behaviors. It's also about memories. It's also about creating kind of continuous memory that we will then use as a kind of benchmark in later life. Uh, we might remember a picnic that we had with our family when we were six or seven or eight or a particular birthday event or a, a holiday trip or something like that that will give us a kind of set of values and norms which we later in life will kind of measure against and say that's what that's what made me really interested in trees or that's what made me really interested in climbing rocks or or um or just a whole and if you don't have those experiences my concern would be that that future adults will have been already disconnected from from nature and wildlife and wilderness and then it will become more even more difficult to promote the kind of policies that we would think are important so I think if I had a priority I would say action for children aged 5 to 11 is probably top of the list at the moment oh wow wow well you uh, the UK has been an inspiration for a lot of folks in the US with this uh, these anarchy zones where kids go basically as you were saying they're just like given free reign and they can even do dangerous things with you know breaking glass or whatever but it's, it's still in a controlled environment. They're not going to go vandalize stores or anything. Um, but it just gives them an outlet and it gives them, it's unsupervised. Um, but then they, as you said, like they're, they're learning. It's not a structured learning, which is what they're used to, um, but it's unstructured. And, and then things just 
happen spontaneously that are memorable and they have great memories. Um, we yeah. just did an experience. Uh, we decided that this is our maybe a fourth time with our son. Um, and I assumed I, I, there was, it's a worldwide movement. It was called the um, International Day of Mud. I don't know if you know about this. Uh, but basically, they just basically it was this, in this garden that we had that the, in, the, in the middle of uh, or on the outskirts of Ithaca, there's this large public garden and they got the fire hose out and just made this huge, probably um, 30 meter by 30 meter pool of mud and adults and kids just jumped in and were splashing each other and diving in the mud. It was hilarious. Um, yeah, it's completely brilliant. I love it. I haven't heard of the International Day of Mud. I should look out for it now. But <laughs> it's worthwhile. I recommend it. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is about that is that that's likely to create not just kind of fun on the day, but some sort of memorable event, um, especially if it's families doing it together, because, of course, you result, you get a greater bonding by sharing an activity. And, and that's the sort of thing that gives us meaning and identity and flows through through life. Um, uh, and that's that's kind of precisely what you want. We want kind of events like that to create. Mm -hmm. I remember if I could make a jump here to... Um, uh, a decade ago, and this is one of the things that inspired me around writing the last book, um, These Countries, I met um, Aldo Leopold's daughters, Nina and Estelle, at the shack in Wisconsin. Um, and they were talking about, uh, it was, uh, they were both, uh, one was in the late 80s and the other in the early 90s at the time. Um, and they were talking about growing up at the shack. And of course, when Aldo Leopold went there, and, and the echo was, his book was a sound county almanac and my book was the east country almanac and i deliberately wanted that kind of sense of rhythm and change across the seasons of the year and the very subtle changes that can occur that we would would um, kind of do well to notice and they described their life of of living at the shack which didn't have very much it was in a kind of bit of a wasteland when they first moved there of course now it's a wonderful uh, tall grass prairie with a beautiful woodland at the back um, uh, the river just uh, just kind of a, around the corner um, but they grew up in a safe space there um, two young girls um, in the middle of the country and it was there that they learned all their kind of conservation um, kind of norms and values of course from their father Aldo but also from being out in nature pretty much all of the time and that's what said they said it determined their kind of life of, of, of action around kind of conservation so I think I think you could kind of look at those examples and say, oh, that's very interesting. So how would we design that sort of thing? Um, whether it's an international mud day or whether it's woodland schools like we have in, in England at the moment, which is just to take a woodland and call it a school and take children there. And people say, well, that's fine now. Um, I can see the kind of structure around it um, to allow interesting things to happen. Or whether it's the scout movement or the girl guides or whether it's kind of any other sort of formal activities that allows um, uh, children to be out in nature, um, I think they should be kind of really thoroughly supported because the evidence is strong that, that this can be very determinative in, in, in creating kind of identity and value for each of us that hopefully would last through the whole of the life course. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, that makes complete sense. And, you know, that was my experience. And it sounds like uh, your experience that, that, that inspired you to... Um, for your life's work, and clearly in uh, your, your latest book, *The East Country*, that it, it's it, every page is imbued with that sensibility. And, you know, I, I do 
particularly in the winter here, <laughs> I have pulled your book out for inspiration. I'll look at the uh, I look at the winter meditations, but then I also look at July. Like, oh, I can't wait for <laughs> the summer as well. Um, but uh, it's just it's just very inspiring. Your your um, as you the word that that's, that popped out uh, when what you were saying earlier was the subtleties that you're focusing on and, and your interest in haiku um, that that imbues the your work. Uh, particularly in this most recent book of just focusing on the things that we ordinarily don't focus on um, and taking the time to just sit an extra couple minutes and, and see what your environment is. Even if it is in the city and there's this one tree that you're looking at, there's many things that you can see. You can see the ants crawling up the tree or there might be a bird there or an interesting design in the bark. Um, but, there's, but there's always something that we can see and experience uh, in our environment, and that, that life becomes more of a, po a poem um, than just um, a scene or a collection of just photographs or scenes. A lot of people, yeah. it does feel that the, and this is maybe also part of mindfulness of just paying more attention to your environment. Um, I think that's, a, that's a, exactly, that hits the nail on the head. I mean, that's what, that's what I wanted to be able to write about. That's kind of also the way I wish to see the world is to kind of observe those small changes, small and important changes, um, but also to kind of have a, a, a sense of neutrality about the world. Um, winter is winter and it's dark and cold, uh, but it has its, its um, special elements. Um, uh, partly you know that spring is coming and when spring comes, um, everything seems wonderful and it's growing marvelously. Um, and you think anything is possible, but by the time you get to autumn, you feel a little bit more kind of humble because not everything was, was possible and um, uh, uh, you understand the complexities of the world a little bit more um, as time passes and around the corner is winter again. And uh, there's a kind of Zen thing in approaching all of these with, with a kind of uh, an equanimity um, that you just say, that's what it is. Um, I'm not going to take too, too particular an, an emotional response that would vary to those, uh, but the one would be very attentive, that you would watch for what is happening, watch for the small changes. This summer here in, in England, we've had um, the longest drought for almost 40 years now, since wow. 1976. So we've not had any rain where I live since May the 14th. Um, and not expecting any for another two or three weeks, I think at least. Um, so it's been a very particular year. Uh, birds of migrating birds have come at completely wrong periods. Insects have appeared at different times. Um, the interactions between those some plants have disappeared and some have flourished. Uh, flourished. Um, and that's this year. We'll remember the summer of 2018 because of the the sunshine and the drought and the heat. Um, uh, but next summer will be different again. Um, and so, you know, you see it's a kind of way of hopefully just approaching the world um, in, in, uh, in a kind of balanced way, but very observant because there's always something to see, always something kind of intriguing, fascinating, different, some kind of interaction that we've not spotted before, um, which, um, of course, hopefully would then keep us equally intrigued about the world as, as we go forward. Yeah, I like that so much, and, and it it it, uh, it reminds me also what you were talking about with uh, just uh, when you create a relationship with your natural environments, you're also seeing the circular time that last last July there wasn't the drought. This July certainly there was a drought. Next year, hopefully, there won't be the drought. But but you have years and years of seeing the same trees, the same environment, 
and seeing the, the ebbs and flows of, of weather or, or migration of animals, but, but, but it is a, a recurring experience that you can relate to and, um, and, and you are a part of as well. That, that I do feel that that is, that is an issue but which we brought up in the very beginning of folks that do live in city, you know, thank God for the, the parks, but that, that it's very easy um, to be pulled out of being in harmony with the seasons. You just move from air-conditioned to air-conditioned uh, environments in the summer and then heated environments in the winter. And then there's small, small points in time where you're outside, uh, but, but you can be divorced from the, the, your natural environment and to see it as something that's, that's out there rather than it's, than it's inside as well. I think that's exactly right. And that's why um, uh, you tend, you, when you're in the city, you might not notice the rain beating on the windows or the wind in the, in the roof or the birds singing early in the morning you have the opportunity where there's not other kind of noise or intrusion um, uh, to notice those things, but you might not unless you pay attention to them. So I think that's partly what, what I hope to get across in the writing is, is to, is to s kind of suggest that just by kind of opening your eyes or as you said, just go out and stand and observe and watch what's happening outside, watch the, the new moon going down as it has done as a kind of sickle the last two nights or, the bats flying in the garden or the, the wind in the trees or something that will then just kind of go, oh, slow you down a moment and think, oh, that's interesting. That's what happened today. Um, and then tomorrow something else will happen. And that it, you can, those things can build up like kind of sediment on the shore over time. Those kind of observations and memories and, and, and ideas can just kind of strengthen um, as, you, as you go forward, which uh, encourages more of it, but also gives the opportunity for storytelling because you can say to friends, family, colleagues, well, this happened, I've just noticed this, what about that? That's interesting. So you can kind of bring a kind of larger group of people in and after all, that's what writing is about, it's just storytelling really. Um, and uh, you hope it will connect with people as well when that happens. Nice, nice. Well, this has been a, such a pleasure talking with you. I know that we could talk for <laughs> a lot longer. I'd like that, um, but we'll call the day for this time. But I look forward to talking with you again. Uh, I love following your work on, on, on Twitter and, and looking on your website and seeing what's, what you're up to and what you're thinking. So it's really been a joy talking with you. And um, again, you're an inspiration, I think. I'm speaking for myself, but also the many, many readers of your titles of just, just paying attention getting out in nature and just um, uh, relating and connecting to our, our natural world in, in as many ways as we can. So it's, it's really a joy. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure chatting. Real, it's, a, it's an honor to be published by Cornell um, University Press. Um, I was a, 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 um, a visiting professor at large um, for Cornell back in the early 2000s. So I've had a long contact with the institution and it's been a real pleasure to be published and to have a chat with you on, on, on this podcast. Thanks very much. Oh, well, thank you, Jules. We really appreciate it. That was University of Essex professor Jules Pretty, author of three Comstock books, This Luminous Coast, The Edge of Extinction, and most recently, The East Country. As a loyal podcast listener, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase any of these books. Visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at the checkout. We also encourage you to visit Jules Pretty's website at julespretty.com and to follow him on Twitter. He posts very thought-provoking and insightful tweets every day. 
Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.